Hi, this is Somerset Winters Thoreau, the host of Space Biff Bookspace. I am joined by renowned board game critic Dan Thoreau of Space Biff. Do you guys know how to pronounce erogeny? And our good friend, <laughs> Rock Polson. Hey, that's me. This is what my voice sounds like. <laughs> oh, we're doing that. This is me. Right. All right. Well, <laughs> this podcast aims to have a discussion every six weeks or so about a book we have mutually read over the last month. For the most part, we will choose books from the Hugo nominees and winners, past and current. Today we are going to be talking about N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season, winner of the Hugo Award in 2016 for Best Novel. This is the yeah, first This is the first book in the Broken Earth series by Miss Jemison. And now we'll have a segment we are affectionately calling Wrong Spoilers. Brock, take it away. So, these are things that are not in the book. Uh these are spoilers that will not spoil any part of the book because they are fake. Uh, spoiler the first. Uh, did you know that if you take your copy of the book and you shake it really hard, a smaller, worse book will fall out of its pages? That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's the worst book? It, it's not just... Well, I mean... I know it's uh, false, but I'm, I mean, uh... I guess... I, I mean, at, at the most basic level... If some of the pages fall out, that would be a smaller, worse book, right? Mm. You know, if Nora mm. Jemison is listening, I think that's the most hurtful thing you could say. Well, she's going to tune in, and that's all she'll hear. She, she'll she intended it to be the length reviews. that it is. <laughs> uh, if you were to shorten it in any way, you would make it smaller and presumably worse. Okay. Uh, the MK in MK Jemison stands for Mortal Kombat. You guessed it. Essen is secretly a Goro. <laughs> Have you ever played Mortal Kombat, Summer? No, sir. Yeah, I don't get it. So <laughs> so her first name is M as in Mora, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, and finally, none of the characters <laughs> in the fifth season know how to pronounce obelisk. <laughs> Uh, this will be more obvious in the screen adaptation. So this is, uh, are we allowed to say that Brock actually didn't know how to pronounce obelisk? <laughs> wait, wait, why are you asking if we're allowed? Uh-huh. Are we allowed to say, oh wait, that's a true spoiler. Oops. Yeah, that, that's, that's ripped from the headlines. Uh, I had to clarify because I was leaning towards obelisk because I had only ever read that word. This book is full of all sorts of words that I only have read. Yes. Orogeny. Like orogeny. <laughs> like your orogenous zones? Yes. Like, they are they erogenists? <laughs> because uh, I don't know how to... Cat- so one of the things I've heard about this book is that it's difficult to categorize. And if it's erogeny, then it might be in a different genre than I thought. Yeah, that puts it in a whole different section bookstore yeah indeed the book the section where they put like those placards in front of the book covers <laughs> it's got beaded curtains yeah brock that's awful <laughs> but lovely uh, i told you they were wrong yes very wrong all right at this time please be aware listeners that we will now be discussing major plot points and revealing real spoilers you have been warned so, Brock, why don't you give us... We should have, like, a klaxon sound effect. Yeah. Like, I'll... right now, it's like, Awooga! Mm. Yeah, I'll put it in in post. Or just do that. Awooga! Mm. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. Like a Nazi submarine base is about to get aerated. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Okay, good idea. All right, but... Brock. Could you now give us a synopsis of this riveting novel? Absolutely. Uh, Essen comes home to find a grisly scene in her living room. Her young son has been murdered, and she knows it could only have been her husband. He must have found out the truth. Essen, along with her son and daughter, are orogenes, people with the ability to control geologic activity. Volcanoes, tectonic plates, earthquakes, 
These people are dangerous to the small communities scattered across the world known ironically as the stillness. Aura genes are either carefully trained and controlled, or else they are destroyed. Knowing her husband has taken their daughter and fled, Essen sets off to find him and avenge her son's death. Elsewhere in the stillness, young Demaya, a different character, wink, has been discovered <laughs> as an origin. Her community is too afraid to kill her, so they call for a guardian to take her away. Guardians negate origin's powers and are used to police these powerful beings. Demaya is taken by her guardian to a school for origins called the Fulcrum, where she'll learn alongside other children to control her powers. Still elsewhere, and still a different character, wink wink, Cyanite is a trained origin of middling rank who is ordered to go on a mission with a highly ranked origin, Alabaster. Together they travel across the stillness to a distant city, uncovering troubling secrets along the way and at their destination. Among them, the knowledge that untrained origins, those who are not killed or controlled, are lobotomized and used as sort of living computers. It's a troubling representation of the Fulcrum's attitude toward their kind. Despite their dislike for one another, Fulcrum law dictates that they try to conceive a child, one that will have their skills. Awkward lovemaking ensues. Yeah, it does. Oh boy, does it. Uh, in a bizarre reversal of the normal will-they-won't-they they drama, because they definitely do, and they both hate it, Cyanite <laughs> performs the job they were assigned to, uh, in the process accidentally freeing a giant floating obelisk from the seafloor. I forgot to mention, though we sort of mentioned, that this book is lousy, with ominous floating obelisks. It's crazy about these things. Meanwhile, wink... Essen meets a young boy named Hoa, who accompanies her on her journey. Like most little boys, he is odd. Unlike <laughs> most little boys, he is chalk-white, and he never eats. Uh, Essen also meets a woman named Tonki, an eccentric hermit, who's soon revealed to be a talented geologist, or geomest in the book's parlance, uh, and she is much more invested in Essen's life than she first appears to be. Also, meanwhile, uh, another wink, you get the idea. Cyanite and Alabaster flee from the Fulcrum, and they find their way to an island, uh, an island settlement populated by sexually liberated pirates. And it is a wild time. <laughs> Yeehaw! Cyanite accompanies their crew on a raid, and Arr. her powers are witnessed by ships from the mainland. Just as they feared, this soon leads to the Fulcrum sending guardians who slaughter the pirates and nearly kill Cyanite and Alabaster, uh, but in the attack, their child is killed. In the end, it's revealed that all three main viewpoints have been <gasps> the same woman. Gasp. At different points in that's her life. That's what those winks meant. Yeah, that's, it's all coming together. Demaya trained at the Fulcrum, and then changed her name to Cyanite in accordance with origin guidelines. After the disaster of the island and the loss of Alabaster, Cyanite fled. And after her travels, Essen joined an underground, origin-tolerant community. The disjointed timelines come together with Essen reuniting with Alabaster. He is dying, and he reveals that he has uncovered some of the secrets of those danged obelisks. Uh, but not how to pronounce it. Then he <laughs> asks if Cyanite has heard of something called... A moon? A moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's how that book goes. Great. Thank you, Brock. Um, at this point, we'd like to look at some one-star reviews that we found online about this book. Like, this, what do people think of this thing, right? This, yeah. this first one... In hate, truth is made manifest. <laughs> oh, That's lovely. an ancient Latin proverb that I just made up. <laughs> uh, in vino veritas? Yes. Yeah, that, does that apply? Well, you know, some of these people, depending okay. on how well it was written, there might have been right. some vino. All right. So there's just two, because really there's only two one-star reviews. These are anonymous. Let me read one of them at a time and then talk about them. Okay, now... So to to be fair, there are more than there are more than two. Oh, okay, the, these were just the best these ones. These were just the 
the plumpest fruits okay. that I could find. All right, here's the first one. <laughs> one star. Worst book I've read since The Road, period. So have you guys read The Road? I have. Is that... I don't think I have. What did you think of The Road, Brock? I mean, The Road is bleak, but it is by no means a bad book. (laughs) It is... uh, I think I read it in one night... And it was shortly after my son was had been born, and yeah, that would make it stressful. There were some feelings felt. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But I liked. I. I mean, I. I liked the road as a piece of literature. I know. Uh, I know some people have reacted against the road a little bit, um, coming from Cormac McCarthy, um, that he's a bit of an interloper into the world of science fiction and dystopian fiction. I thought it was very vivid. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I didn't enjoy it very much. I don't know if you're meant to. Yeah, I don't uh, think it, that's on his list, but I thought it was well written. Uh, so maybe it's telling this person uh, that this is the worst book they've read since they read The Road. That could mean that this is the best book they've read since oh. The Road. Like, if they really liked it. Sure, yeah. And this is just the worst thing they've read since that book they really liked. And they accidentally clicked and typed one star. (laughs) It wasn't (laughs) enough to click it. (laughs) Right. Well, this next one, um, there's a bunch of points. Summer, why don't you read them, like, one at a time, maybe? I don't know. Let me save you some time. Racism is bad, and we should respect all people. Yeah, that's the true. first bullet point. True. Yeah, the f- I think that's. Um... That is true. Okay. Uh, line number two: slavery is bad, and it makes the slaves unhappy. As opposed to making them jolly. Sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are ruining the earth, and we'll pay for this when the earth gets mad at us. Which that's what all right, the scientific right. reports controlling, say. Controlling, controlling seismic. Um, Disturbances. That's bad. Yeah. With your erogenous and the Earth zones. is going to get mad for yes. <laughs> doing that. And uh, the last, the last one's kind of my favorite. Pity the transgender folks who will lose access to their hormone therapy when the world ends. I mean, don't we? F- I mean, is he wrong? There's some, there's some deep. There's a lot to unpack in that bullet point. Yeah. <laughs> I, let's. I mean, pity I mean, absolutely. I'm when a, the world ends? Yeah. I'm a give them a ben- the benefit of the doubt kind of guy. So I go through that, and I'm like, well, none of these are wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he's making Racism good points. Racism is bad. We should respect all people. Slavery is bad. Do you, think, how, do you think that he's making an argument that slavery is great? So, Summer, read the, read, you got to read the last line because, oh, right. I mean, Bob any, really brings it here. Any one of these things would be the topic of an interesting book, but piled on top of each other, it just makes your eyes roll. I suggest reading something else. Listen, Bob loves each of these topics individually. <laughs> he's, he's all about any of these things on their own. But you can't mix them. Gosh, when you put them together, it's just like, whoa, peanut butter and chocolate? I just, it's too much. I don't know if that's that apt. Those are things you like. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, but Bob you know what does. I like? He well, likes reading these things. But I, you know what? You can't mix four different realities into one book. That's just nuts. That's what he's saying, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, he's exactly. saying, yeah, like racism is peanut butter, slavery is chocolate, environmentalism is pretzels. Oh, sure, yeah. Transgender people <laughs> losing their hormone therapy is... Uh, that's the caramel. Yeah, that's the yeah the, <laughs> the caramel. <laughs> These things do it's not too go rich. together too into rich. a delicious take five... Candy bar. ...thing. Yeah, you must not like that candy bar. Well, who does? All right. <clears throat> well, Dan, why don't you kick off the conversation, our real discussion of this book, by answering... Why is this earth so broken? I'm not going to do that. Fine. In part because the book doesn't. 
Uh, <laughs> at all. <laughs> all right. Um, actually, so I wanted to kind of start with that. So let's talk a bit about what this book does mechanically, its structure and such. How does that sound, guys? I think that sounds great. Alrighty. So it, it's a bit of a non-traditional format. It breaks it, it, it breaks the fourth wall. It talks to you directly multiple times. Right. Um, so there's three characters, and one of those three characters it addresses in the second person. So it's talking to you. You. So I at one point I was reading this, and my son was sitting next to me, and he, which, I mean, could have gone poorly at any moment in this book, but he looked at one of the pages I was reading, and he asked me if I was reading a choose-your-own-adventure book. Hmm. Yeah. Because... It's written in the second person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, no, it's just, it's just how this one's written. It's just idiosyncratic. Yep. It's just kind of odd. So what did you guys think of that? Um, so sometimes it's my understanding that it was Hoa talking to us. Is that wrong? Or is that... That's... Really? Yeah. I, I doubt that that's wrong, but that no, that's not how I... I mean, I guess I just thought it was a stylistic... Um, and then, you know, at the end of the book, I thought, well, maybe that was to subtly communicate that that's the most recent of the timelines. Sure. But, no, I think that's a good... I, I guess that makes thought. sense. It doesn't really say that, though. Yeah. I kind of figured Essen was talking to me as herself, like she's talking to herself. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was Hoa. Um, maybe we'll find out if we read the second book. Uh, we'll get more to that, whether we intend to. Um, so what did you guys think of that? Did you find it distracting? Did you find it worthwhile? I'm, and Summer, maybe you have uh, another idea. I don't know that it, I didn't feel like it added anything. I, I didn't find it off-putting or anything. Uh, it, it did take a bit of time to get, uh, to get into the swing of reading that way. Um, yeah, I mostly just found it interesting. I uh, I wasn't quite sure why there were three main characters. I liked that they were all women, and they all seemed to be different uh, as we went along. And there were little clues here and there to indicate that it was actually the same person. But but uh, it was. I just felt I just found it interesting, not jarring or anything. I found it. I, I'll. I'll... I'll be that guy. I found it a little bit jarring. Um, so I don't know I, how you guys tend to read things, um, but I I tend to read multiple books at once. And so I was reading, um, you know, the, the popular way to write things nowadays is third person, close focus, you're hearing their thoughts. And so then I would come back to this, to a chapter that was in, second person or even come back from reading the other two chapters and yeah I would get a little bit disoriented at times I don't think I would argue that it's bad for the book in any way no. I think I think it's a disorienting nature is reflective of how disoriented I was trying to figure out the culture of the stillness and the humanese empire and everything else yes well it I also, think oh sorry go ahead nope you go ahead summer I was going to say it also uh, helps because the environment is disorienting this whole earth and inside every story it's very disorienting so for that switch in perspective and uh, whatever whatever that's called point it, of it, view. that point of view it lends to the disorientation of the time especially in the latest time in essence time uh-huh. because the world is is physically ending right there and it's very disorienting and she's in a very disorienting time her son was murdered she's chasing her husband and her daughter who is also an origin according to Essen and so it's very I mean she's confused she's disoriented and I, I think that point of view change lends to and I, and making I, us that way too and I think it's pretty clear she's not thinking straight yeah the the her entire quest I think of the three storylines going on. Um, she's discombobulated. She's just feeling her way through a bad situation. So in a, in one sense, I did find it distracting. 
um, but the way it sort of numbed me a little bit and f- I think was also reflective of the way that she had been numbed. Um, so at one point she does something pretty, at a couple of points, arguably, she does some pretty terrible things and doesn't feel the ramifications of them the way th- that she should. Um, and we, I want to talk more about that later, what she does and how she feels about it. But um, I, I feel like the, the point of view, the way it was told, that second person stance actually contributed to making it, to giving it that numbness, that distance. It's not, a, it's not the way that we usually read something. I think, yeah, I think those are two uh, good points that we kind of touched on that, you know, one, the sort of communication that she has been thrown off any any sort of normality or, you know, this event that happened to her and we later discover several other traumatic things that have happened to her, but coming and, you know, finding her son murdered has thrown her into uh, a state of... Uh, just distress and so you know her having a different perspective sort of relays that you know Um, one thing i wanted to ask you um how long did it take you guys to figure out that these three characters were the same person and more than that why why do you think that's necessary i tend not to figure those sort of things out <laughs> I, I, I watch i watch movies with my wife and she she figures those you know she is always telling me this is going to happen and uh, i i tend to sort of get get caught up in the surface level information that i'm being given and you know i, I would have i have to go back and i have to really think and and uh analyze things before I really uh, get get to those things. I did, you know, once I think there was a point where it was revealed that two of them were the same mm-hmm. before you know, before we find out that they're all the same and at that point it's kind of like, well, obviously they're all the same if these two are, you know, if these two are the same perspective, they're not going to have this odd woman out mm-hmm. and have this one other. So, you know, most likely they're all three the same perspective. So what was your reaction when you found out that they were the same person? I I don't recall exactly what my reaction was. I think I <clears throat> I started to see some sort of common threads. It changed the way I was imagining the different characters uh, just a little, sort of even just physically. Yeah, I had been I had been thinking of them as having different appearances. But then they all kind of melded into into one, you know, once once I figured it out. Sure. <clears throat> Why do you think it was necessary for uh NK Jemison to separate them like that? Was it was it for the I mean, I I I am I'm hesitant to say that it was just for the you know, shaggy dog moment of, oh, they're all the same person. I don't, I, to me, that's kind of, Love a, that kind of a cheap reveal. Um, so why do you think it might be important in this story to separate their identities for, you know, four fifths of the narrative? <clears throat> well, she, she explains it at some point. Well, not explains it, but she mentions, I, I think it's Essen. She says, she says something about, oh, I was I was different before, or I've had to change before. I was someone else before. And I think it comes at three very specific times, and it's when there is the death of children. Uh, in the very beginning, she becomes... Is, does she become Demaya, or she, she was start, Demaya before? She starts out as Demaya. Okay. So she starts out as Demaya, and when she becomes Cyanite... It's basically when her childhood is over as Demaya, when she gets caught in the, in the, um, in the the Guardian's building. Okay, and that so Demaya Demaya dies, yeah, because she can't be that child anymore. She has to grow up. The Guardian, or what's their, her Guardian's name? Uh, isn't it Shafa Guardian Warrant? 
That sounds because they they always have a, a they have a given name, a place, a yeah, newscast, cast. and then the the location that they're from. Her guardian tells her, "You can't be Demaya anymore." I mean, he basically tells her that you have to take this first test, and so her childhood is over. That's the first death of a child, and then with cyanite, she changes again when her child dies. Koru. I mean, her child and her lover are killed. And, I mean, she has to kill Koru. That's the death of another child. And then with and then she's becomes Essen after cyanite. And, I mean, it, you can tell that she, like we've been talking about, she's disoriented and, and not really thinking straight. She's no longer Essen, even though that's who she's identifying herself as right now. And, and her child just died. It's Ushe, or whoever you want to say his name. So it's the death of children, I think, that prompts each change in her. And how being. much, how much is that that the the death of each child is in, in to some extent by her own hand. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah, you could argue she caused all of them, mm-hmm. in some sense. One you know, thing, even just the you know the 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 last one, her son, just by her the nature of her existence, she caused his death sure i think that you know i was tempted brock to ask you to do two separate synopses (laughs) for this story because i think that it's a very different story once you realize that they are instead of three stories told at different times and you know they have to be at different times um essen's story obviously is after humanes the humanes rift has been opened and the world is ending, and clearly the world is not ending in the other two stories. Uh, it's business as usual. The fulcrum exists. It hasn't been turned into a volcano. So it's business as usual. But it's, I think if you tell it as three sequential stories, it becomes a really different thing. And I wonder if one of the reasons it was divided up is because the quantity of suffering in her life is almost too unbelievable. That if you were to tell the story of these three women as though they were one, it would almost be unbelievable that, you know, that she was the little girl whose parents hated her and whose guardian kind of had this weird paternalistic love for her, which meant he would break her hand mm-hmm. uh, to teach her a lesson. And that she found these conspiracies within the fulcrum and that she had killed her own child and that she had lost another child. It's the tale of Essen is one that is so rich with tragedy that to, that to detail it as one life almost sounds like too much. And I wonder if that's something that was going on. What do you think? I think that's a great, uh, a, a really good thought. I, I think, you know, obviously I think when we, when we look at, you know, literature, we have part of what we have to factor in is, okay, it's for you know, it's for entertainment. It is, it is to be enjoyed, and you know, and there's style and choices that go into that. Sure. I think a lot of you know switching up and, and having three sort of masked identities uh, is there. Are, there are those through lines. You know, there are the deaths of children and and that sort of connecting thread of the price that children pay for the things that adults want and um, but yeah I do, I do think there maybe and maybe it loses some of its impact if we if we see it just sequentially this is the same woman and these things are happening you know maybe we we don't see it as uh, as significant until we have sort of split it and then realized that it all was concentrated on one person. Well, I, I wonder how much of this is meant as entertainment. Um, for me, the the moment when it would switch between characters was a relief just because I was done reading about the suffering of the previous chapter's character. Like they were, the things that they were enduring were so fraught and tense that then a chapter break would come in and go, oh, thank goodness. We're done talking about Demaya, you know, the threat to her life every moment of every day in the fulcrum. Now we can talk about 
you know, this cheery story of this, you know, this woman seeking vengeance with her, you know, stone eater little boy and, uh, you know, Tonky in a post-apocalyptic hellscape where no one's going to survive. <laughs> Thank goodness we're done with all that stress. And, um, you know, I, 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 I found this hard to be, I, I found it fascinating. I was invested in the mysteries. I don't know if I found it, uh, entertaining in the traditional sense of the word. Yeah. That might be a bit, uh, a bit generous. What do you think, Summer? <clears throat> Well, no, I wouldn't call it entertaining, I, but I would definitely call it intriguing. Sure. You know, something that you definitely wanted to come back to and, and figure out sure. what was going on. So what what is going on in this story, do you think? So in terms of the broad arc, it feels a lot to me like it's kind of just bringing characters together. Like the uh, the story is basically that they get to Castrama. What do you think? It, I, I would argue, I'm not saying this is bad. There's very little in this discussion that I would say is bad. I loved this book. It did a lot of things I really appreciated. Uh, but it's so non-traditional that I don't think this, this book has an, the same type of arc that most fantasy or post-apocalyptic books would have. So what, what do you two have to say about that? I agree with that. I think that this book sort of really serves, and, it, and I think it's a thing that fantasy and, uh, to an extent, science fiction fans complain about, that this first book is serving to set up a trilogy or a series, you know. Um, and I, I don't think that... I, I don't think it resolves a lot of its... Uh, Oh no! Points and you know. It, you know, it, I I I bet the next book will pick up like two minutes after this one ends. Sure. <laughs> okay, so why don't we move on from the mechanical stuff? I have so many questions I want to ask you about. Here's the first one. So, what did you think about the culture, the stillness? What kind of world has she built here? What did you think of it? Summer, go ahead. I keep jumping in. Uh, that's fine. If you had a thought, go ahead. I, I think that it's... I think that there's some great world building. I think there's intricacy and and there's variety and diversity, you know, all across this uh, this continent. And... You know, she shows a lot of sort of, I mean, there's fascinating architecture and the the societal organization. I think there's a lot of just really fascinating bits that are, that seem very fleshed out. Sure. Well, and it's obviously quite broken. Um, these, the regular people that don't have the orogeny power to control the earth I mean but they still rely on these people that they despise so it creates a very interesting weird uncomfortable dynamic between these two sets of people um, you know I I think I almost went a little bit the other way I I think that one of the challenges of world building in fantasy or science fiction is making the world seem broad enough. Um, you know, so often it seems like there's one culture and it's, and to this book's credit, it isn't the usual, it, it isn't like pastoral France or Britain, the way so many fantasy novels, you just picture these little hamlets and hedgerows and that's, that's the culture for the entire, you know, fantasy world. This definitely goes the other way. Um, you know, approaching it from the perspective of, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in history and the way ideas change and are shaped. The parts for me that were most interesting were the allusions to changing lore and cultures that had been there before. And those are, those are things we don't really learn very much about in this book. And it, it felt like it was dangled just out of reach. So to me, it was at times frustratingly homogenous. Um, 
I was really bothered at moments. You know, I think that she has this great setup with with comms and use casts and the way that everything these people do is built toward the end of surviving the fifth season. Um, you know, with the, the moment that an earthquake or an eruption creates years-long winters of, of ash and darkness. But it mentions at some points that there's so much time between seasons that people even get to the point where they start to treat it like it's a legend. And, um, but it takes hundreds of years. I feel like that would take like 50 years before you would see a bunch of drift. What do you guys think? Oh, yeah. I I mean, I think that they mention sort of the evidence all around, though, you know, that they're building comms on top of other comms. You know, they're building amidst ruins. And uh, I mean, you know, and, and maybe maybe it would just take a couple generations before you plastered over the you know the the crumbled buildings you you repurpose that material and oh yeah you erase I mean, I mean the evidence cultures do that now i mean london is sure. london is an archaeological treasure trove um you know a, a tell city like tel aviv is built atop ruins i feel like i feel like she's almost giving people too much credit for tradition but i mean so much of the well, story is about the overwhelming nature of the tradition but the i mean i think that it I think it probably takes longer for them to become complacent because when it becomes a fifth season, it's like a huge natural disaster over their whole continent because they all just it's all just one continent uh, for most of the book. And so like a volcano erupts, that's a huge natural phenomenon that would I mean it would kill just about everybody. And the people that survive, I mean, they're starting from scratch, basically. So I can understand. I, I don't see that as a problem, that it would take longer, that it would take a long period of time for them to become complacent again. Well, after see, the long yeah, change. I, I, and again, I'm just approaching this from the perspective of, of history. I mean, you know, the, the span of time well, between World well, War I and II is really short. You know, people yeah. don't seem to remember lessons even within their own lifetime, let alone big lessons lifetimes ago well but which historical happening occurred that like changed the the environment of the entire earth when was the last time that happened oh you know probably the little ice age (laughs) okay (laughs) that was that was just medieval that wasn't that long ago i mean some of the time spans in this uh some of the time spans in this are taking place longer than that was ago so I'm serious. When, you know, it it wasn't bothering me so much in the book, but when I went and read the appendix that was saying all the years <laughs> that the seasons were apart, and I was going, ah, these people wouldn't remember this at all. Maybe they got the dates wrong because they're that, like, they you know, lost their calendars. <laughs> I, I, think, I think this is a problem in, like, any fantasy. Like, you read Game of Thrones or something. And they and they're going well. In this this kingdom, this this dynasty ruled for eight hundred years, and I'm going. No one lasts that long. No historical <laughs> time. Fo- no historical fo- force lasts that long. Um, you know, and I, I I don't think she's approaching it from the perspective where she cares about that. But it was driving me a little bit nuts as a uh, historian because change happens more than that. Okay, so it seems like you guys liked that part, and I'm I'm the other one. I'm the odd man out. But let's talk about those erogenous zones. Um, let's do it. Let's what get did, to it. What did you guys think of erogeny? I think it has a neat uh, sort of pseudoscience to it. The way that uh, you know the origins pull energy from living things around them. Uh, sort of sap away the heat and use that to sort of fuel their ability. I think that's pretty neat. And the the ranks I also thought were um, were kind of a cool application of you know if we have magic and we're teaching people to use it you know obviously we're going to have you know there's bureaucracy everywhere right we're going to have order and ranks and and uh, so I, I I thought it was neat 
So in terms of Brandon Sanderson's hard versus soft magic, <laughs> where does erogeny <laughs> fall? <laughs> well, it's no, why it's no Mistborn, right? Why don't you explain the difference there for us, Brock, in case somebody doesn't understand? Like oh, me. I'm not... I just I'm not make... sure I... So so Brandon Sanderson uh, talks exactly. about the difference between hard and soft uh, magic is almost like the difference between Marvel and DC. <laughs> like, a hard magic system is you, the reader, know the rules so that when the, when the characters who use magic do something cool, even something new, you're like, wow, that's plausible within the rules that have been set up by this story. Whereas soft magic is like Superman and all of those idiots where they can just like do anything and there's no <laughs> rules and they're just pulling new magic out of their uh, erogenous zones all the spandex. time. <laughs> out of their spandex. Sure. Out of their undies on the outside all the time. So what do you think? Hard or soft? I mean, I I actually was was waiting on that to to see which one you were going to reveal was DC and which one was Marvel. Cause I don't, I don't think there's any, <laughs> there's any uh, sort of abiding by rules in any place. I think they, uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody would love to teach me how wrong I am. I would I, say that this is an over medium magic. It's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, sure. Because... I, I thought it was soft, <laughs> but I think that that serves the story because I don't think even the characters no, understand they don't the even rules. Know. Yeah, that's yeah. True. I think it's a little, it's a little runny. Well, yeah, so, yeah, a little runny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's over easy. The, over yeah. easy. The yolk magic. is a little hard. Some white is yeah. still a little runny in there. Well, yeah. yeah. So I would normally <laughs> I would say a soft magic system is a criticism, but in this case, I I think it's part of the tapestry and the mystery of what the story is going for. Right, because it's yes. like they're the society is caging these people that have this power, but, like, no one really understands it. I mean, even it seems like the Guardians don't even understand it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the Guardians know what's going on at they all. They just know they've got this other magic yeah. power. Yeah, and I, th I think when we're talking, you know, when you're talking hard versus soft, it's sort of, it's almost from the perspective of the, uh, you know, we're looking at the perspective of the people who actually use it, and them not getting it doesn't mean that there aren't rules it you know it just means that sure. they they know to a certain point how it works and it's beyond that it's a mystery you know mm -hmm. where you look at like uh you know you look at gandalf who just you know whatever needs to get done he can do it on occasion there's no explanation of where the power comes from or you know what what uh the source of that magic is and you know where this makes some efforts to to paint a plausible and and i i think often it it comes down to physics you know where how do we understand physics energy has to come from somewhere you know and and sure the so sort you, of most basic so explanation so you think it's operating under we understand it at some level because it operates according to some thermodynamic principles sure. that we all know. Like you can't yeah. run your air conditioner <clears throat> without adding heat. Right. You know, basic ideas. Okay, so I have two questions for you. Uh, these are the loaded ones. Are you ready? Ooh. Yeah, these are the loaded ones. So first of all, what then is the metaphor? What is orogeny a metaphor for? What are origins or ragas, as they are called by epithet? What are they the metaphor for? Well, it's it's erogeny, right? The other the other uh, word that's pronounced like that. <laughs> no, I no, Nothing I don't else. actually think that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we maybe we should try to make that fit, but. Uh, what is, what is your opinion on that? You know, one of the things I... Okay, I'll just preface this with... I love the way N.K. Jemison writes female characters. And so a big, a big criticism that I've heard, uh, especially lately, is that too many male authors don't know how to write a, a female character. And that they're just, they're just male characters 
but they happened to be walking around with, you know, lady bits instead of man bits. And, um, and I really like the, the dynamism of her characters. I feel like they're believably female to me. Um, and I don't know if I'm the best critic of that. I've read plenty of female characters who are like, yeah, they seem like girls. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm not the best judge there. Um, but also, um, just her approaching this as a person of color, I, I, I do think that she's intending a racial metaphor with this. Uh, and maybe not directly. It's not transmitted directly um, by bloodline. There's kind of this predisposition toward it that two uh, origins pairing up as cyanite and alabaster are compelled to. Um, but I, I do think there's a racial metaphor, and in part because of their pairing. And that's something I want to talk about in a minute. I don't want to talk about it quite yet. Um, but what, what what are you? I even think I even think the term raga is pretty loaded. Oh, absolutely. I think it's pretty close to a real word term that I'm not going to use. Thank you. Um, but it's a it's a two syllable word that hinges on a double G. I, sure. You know, I I think it has the same cadence, and I don't think that's unintentional. Right. Ginger. Yeah, a couple of yeah. G's and I and E and an R. It's a ginger. <laughs> Sorry, Brock, I said it. It's ginger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're friends. You can use that word. Uh, I'm not a redhead. I don't know why I'm giving you permission. Um, <laughs> you can't extend that privilege. Yeah. <laughs> so what I, do you guys think? I think, uh, and that's uh, I, that's a reading that I've seen elsewhere, and I think it's, I think it's apt. Um, and I think that the, you know, in a lot of ways that lines up, you know, the, the way that, the way that guardians, these, this police force treats them, you know, and, and, uh, the, you know, this book is very much a product of, of our time. The way that a black woman comes home and finds her son murdered, you know, I mean, there are some, there are some pretty heady, uh, events. Well, and also in her, um, in her needing to kill her own son when the guardians have come so that he doesn't have to, um, live the life that she was made to. I mean, that's very evocative of... Well, or worse. I mean, we don't know. I right. Mean, her, her, her son might even be made to be an instrument of her own mm-hmm. oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, that her son could, would probably, I don't think her son would be raised in the fulcrum having been born, uh, beyond its confines. I think that her son would probably be put in one of those way stations, whatever, yeah. whatever they the, called them. The nodes. Yeah. The node yeah. stations, um, to be used to still, uh, the tremors kind of unconsciously, um, yeah, absolutely. Or perhaps, depending on the child's powers, become uh, a guardian. Yeah. I think that that's a major part of it is, you know, the when we find out a little bit about guardi- who guardians are and what they come from. So you think guardians are just origins that their origin yeah. power is to control <laughs> other origins? Yeah, I think, I think that they're the descendants of origins who don't manifest origin Orogeny. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> <laughs> or a genesis. Um, but that, you know, that's what I suspect. Um, I don't remember if it says it in there. there. I mean, it's like every other page, there's some revelation. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think that she's even worried that her child could be used as a tool in her own oppression. Or her people's oppression. Sure. So, so let me ask you something super controversial. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from when, when I say this. Um, is the fulcrum right? Are the guardians right? No. Okay, so parse that. Why is that? So here's where I'm coming from with asking this question. I feel like we, it's, it's very easy to make a metaphor and say these special, powerful people are a metaphor for uh, a race or a sex 
or you know uh, you know any other form of discrimination you know like x-men or the avengers that we shouldn't register these people because registering humans and policing them based on profiling is wrong but the first act we see in the entire book is the extermination of humanity right by one of these people <laughs> by one of these people with a vendetta Yes. And and it's not yeah. just that she's going to ex- that it, alabaster. Sorry, not she. It's not just that alabaster is exterminating the fulcrum or the humanese or you know the guardians. He is exterminating every child who's living or will live. He's exterminating um, the happy, sexy pirates. <laughs> he, he is killing even the happy-go-lucky commune of pro uh, aura genes that lives down south. He's killing everyone because of his, and he's able to do that because of his power. One of the other first acts we see is that um, our main character, Essen, exterminates a town. And they don't know it yet, but she has breached the aquifers, and they need that water in order to survive what they think is going to be a season. And it will be, but it'll be a thousand years long instead of a few. She kills a whole town. And we've seen that this town has some people that are allies to her. It has that. Uh, doctor character, the mayor was trying to help her, the leader, whatever his name was. Um, so so it, it does show that unlike, you know, <laughs> a real world parallel with a oppressed and discriminated people, kind of like in X-Men, where the discriminated people can strike you with lightning or mind control you. <laughs> right. That, right. That we're not just talking about a person, we're talking about a person with a telepathic gun in their head. So, so persuade me, and I'm not saying I disagree, but persuade me that the fulcrum is wrong. Well, I mean, clearly they could just lobotomize all of them, right? So you think they could, like their methods, maybe their methods, maybe their methods are kinder. wrong, yeah. And, it, <laughs> and I think it does show that they're, they're pretty, at best, they're a bit icky. Um, I, for me, the most chilling line in the whole book full of chilling lines was uh when he says Damaya now I'm going to break your hand mhm and that was just such a my heart beat faster oh yeah at the thought of a can... little girl having her hand broken to teach Gosh. her a lesson that she didn't yep. understand in the first place yeah what do you think summer well i think it i think that goes both ways that the i mean the guardians are trying to control these people that they don't even understand themselves you know they understand them to a point and all they see is danger and i mean that's dangerous in itself that they're trying to contain something that they don't even understand i mean that's like that's like the theme of every alien movie and every <laughs> yeah trying to jurassic park you know jurassic trying park. to there contain that which should not which, be contained yeah that they don't understand I, I mean that's obviously not a good characteristic you know and as well the uh, the tendency to look at a group of people and to see them all as only one attribute mm-hmm. sure you know I you know just thinking about it and trying to what what would be better um, you know first of all thank heavens we don't have to police uh, people who can <laughs> control tectonic plates right. and volcanoes. Um, it certainly makes some of our modern racial problems seem small by comparison uh, <laughs> when we don't have those differences. But, um, you know, so how could they how could they contain this better, more mercifully? Um, See, I don't even like that language. How could they contain it? Uh-huh. I mean, you're even, like, siding with this with this language of theirs we need to contain this problem you know i think i think in a sense it does need to be contained the mm. problem i when i say it i'm meaning orogeny mm. <laughs> the power right yeah, the, well, I, mean, I mean i mean just like like with uh, modern weaponry i would say we need to contain it uh, nuclear power or missiles or tanks or or firearms yeah, but again, to be you're, fair, you're, like, Summer. you're calling these people weapons. They're not weapons. They're people. They just no. have a different power. No, no, no. They are people that are also weapons. <laughs> they are. They aren't one thing. Um, to be fair, they have enormous they did potential. Kill everyone. <laughs> 
Well, and to <laughs> that be, one guy did kill everyone. He did kill everyone. <laughs> Everyone's going to die. You know, I mean, there, there's going to be something with the obelisks or whatever in the moon. Um, sure. But, but, you know, he did kill everyone. Or did he? <laughs> well, he sure as hell killed a lot of people. <laughs> there were a lot of dead babies on that guy's hands. Um, so I, I, but I know I, I actually think that this question is something that the book is raising: is a corrupt system even worth preserving? And I, I think, you know, it's and it's so hard. You know, it's so hard to look at this and say like, well, in the you know. In, in the metaphor, maybe the answer is different than in this fantasy world where something has to be done, right? Sure. More, more schools, more of these fulcrum schools that are just everywhere so that every child with this power can learn to control it. But, you know, it is, it is a power that has to be, how about instead of controlled, we say guided, that's much kinder. Yeah, we can use <laughs> we can we can choose our verbiage to sound as kinder, harsh as how about eradicated harsh skin? <laughs> what do you think, Summer? I I don't I don't have anything else to add. Oh, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I had my outburst. You had your outburst. <laughs> <laughs> it was so mild. Where I was like, hey, stop calling them them. Well, no, I was calling it origin-y. That's what I was trying to refer to. But I, I, I take your point. It's fine. Um, I mean, certainly forced breeding programs probably don't rank high on a merciful bad. organization. That's right. bad. Um, I mean, that's, that's one of the places, actually, that the parallels to slavery became most pronounced to me. Um, was that something that you guys were thinking about was parallels to slavery? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There were lots of scenes that were evocative of, of slave stories and, you know, like, I I mean, the one that that stands out the most to me and probably because I have a, a, you know, a young child was when she had to, she had to kill her own, her own child to save him. Mm -hmm. She killed her child to save him, which is you know, a terrible thing to have to do, but it seemed it was very necessary. A merciful act, despite being horrifying. Yes. I mean, for what, what about you, Brock, before I say what that evoked for me? I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the parallels there, uh, you know, and it's not just that these characters are people of color, but you know, that they are, I mean, they're slaves, you know, they're forced into labor. And uh, I mean, there's an element of eugenics a little bit there too, with this force. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we haven't mentioned this. Um, I, I don't think, but Alabaster is a gay man who, because of this ability, you know, he is forced to have sex with women. And, you know, there, there's a, a cruel element in that, you know, it, on top of the the uh, forced labor, right? Well, yeah, they're they're forced either into servitude or into hiding. Um, yeah, that that's the binary choice. If you are a person who has erogeny, you either hide, and you'll probably be caught. Right, because they or can you, sense you. Or you work, right? Or you work for the system and kind of pretend to enjoy it. And uh, not falter. It's not enough that you go along. You also have to go along and... And, and put on a good face. Yeah, you have to be a good sport. Um, you know, what that evoked for me, you used the word eugenics, Brock. And and for me, I, that, was, that was very foremost on my mind. So kind of an older form of eugenics. You may have heard um, of the one-drop rule. Have you heard of that? Yes. And so it's it's interesting that in the history of of the slave trade, uh, the Atlantic slave trade. Um, there's two systems that are kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to oversell it and make it sound enjoyable, but in, in, in history, um, it's interesting to compare 
the slave trade of of the colonies in the United States versus that of Brazil. Um, and they take a very different approach to the one-drop rule. So in the United States, there weren't all that many slaves imported. There were about 400,000, which is... Uh, compared to Brazil, which was closer to Africa, and they traded more, which was over four and a half million imported slaves. Wow. And and the way that they approached uh, pacification was really different, and it but it had to do with with breeding and bloodlines. So in the United States, most slaves ended up being the descendants of other slaves. Um, and in order to kind of keep people in line and to prevent their workforce from being bred out, the one drop rule uh, was that if you had even a little bit of black in your bloodline, you were black. Um, in Brazil, on the other hand, they had the opposite problem, where they were outnumbered by the slaves that they had imported, and they tended to work them harder, they tended to work them to death, because they didn't have that future trade value. Um, so they came up with the opposite system in order to keep the that four and a half million slaves in line, where if you had even a little bit of white in you, you were whiter than you had been. And so there were different gradients of of whiteness. And, it, and it's this tactic that they did so that rather than being um, just black or white, you were white or you were a little white or a lot white or three quarters white or black, and it turned a minor this majority into many little minorities that couldn't team up against their overlords. Hmm. Um, but in both cases, what what we're seeing is that they use the the sexual politics of breeding and bloodlines uh, as a method of control, um, so that they won't have slave uprisings. And so, when I was reading this <clears throat> about um, being forced to breed. Um, and kind of having this promise that, well, the way that you get along, the way that you have more privileges is you breed and you produce offspring who will be have more privileges. And it, for me, it was very evocative of the way that both the U.S. and Brazil approached that one drop rule about these breeding programs and the way that humans are reduced into who your parents were. Um, you know, that's something I couldn't help but think about as I was reading those passages. That's very interesting history. It is. <laughs> Thanks for teaching us. I didn't know that us. about Brazil. No, I didn't either. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's an interesting and unfortunate, it's, it's hard history to read, um, but, but you do read about intentional, uh, you know, that, that on slaveholders' minds, they're always afraid of an uprising. So what do they do? They come up with little strategies to divide and keep uh, people pacified. And they always do. It's always done with kind of the way the guardians in this book are so paternalistic. You know, mm -hmm. th they're so kind. They're always smiling. Even when they're attacking you, they're, they seem really passive. Yeah, so like creepy. It's a, like it's a mercy or a kindness. Right. Um, they're, and they're not using the language of hate. They're weaponizing the language of love. And it's the same kind of thing that uh, slaveholders would do, um, you know, making their slaves sing gospel out in the fields and then saying, look at what I'm doing for them. Yeah. They are so happy. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I read this and the parallels to a slave narrative were really pronounced. Yeah. Do either of you have any other thoughts on that no i don't i don't have anything as uh as insightful to share i think i think that's a lot well so here well so here, here's kind of the broad question and maybe this is where we should uh wrap up my line of questioning but um what did what did you two get out of this book in terms of you know uh power structures and whether they're racial or sexual or uh class or paternal what did it evoke for you I, one thing that, you know, that's not, I think, a big cultural detail, but specific to cyanite and alabaster, that their relationship sort of goes almost in the opposite direction of uh, the typical male-female relationship you see in in fiction, or, you know, where it, it starts with sex and it is concurrent <laughs> with disli yeah. disliking one another, and then it grows from there, and it blossoms into love. 
and you know and they they have this love and this connection uh kind of a grudging love at times sure I, sure yeah i, I don't you know like, i i, I think of, it's one of those they love each other but they sure don't like each yeah, other that yeah. much you know, it's <laughs> necessity sometimes but but it blossoms into something you know that comes from this strange place pirate love kind of like, <laughs> kind of like our relationship well, ours really. yeah exactly dan <laughs> <laughs> Well, what what other thoughts do you what 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 else do you two want to discuss? I've asked enough silly questions. Well, you were in charge of discussions. Yeah, so. I was in charge of asking yeah. the silly right, questions. Right. So I wrote down plenty. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure I we've pretty much talked on every talked about everything that I wanted to that I had thought of bringing up. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about, Brock? Nope, I'm tapped. That was <laughs> it. <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, that's about an hour or so of us talking. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today to discuss N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season. Uh, next month is Brock's Choice, and why don't you go ahead and tell us what we are going to be reading and talking about next. It's a doozy. Uh, we are going to be reading The Three-Body Problem by Liu Cixin. <laughs> I've read it. Yeah, Dan's ahead of us. Yeah. And if you have any ideas for discussion, uh, you can email us at spacebiffbookspace at gmail.com.